Your body's trying to tell you something. It's giving you hints that something isn't right. That's why we talk with expert dietitians to break down these early warning signs so you can get closer to understanding what your body is trying to tell you. When it comes to eating disorders, your body is basically waving a red flag, trying to get your attention. But the origin of eating disorders can also be traced back to genetic factors, disruptions in reward processing, and imbalances in gut biology. On today's episode of Wonder Why, Dr. David Weiss, a registered dietitian, nutritionist since 2013, founded Nutrition and Recovery, a group practice of RDNs specializing in treating eating and substance use disorders. He earned his PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA. Dr. David Weiss is a scientific author with over 20 peer-reviewed publications, a nutrition and health consultant, functional medicine practitioner, recovery coach, and passionate educator. Learn more about the intersection of nutrition and mental health at Wise My Nutrition, where you can learn about his revolutionary mobile app available today for download. Welcome, Dr. Wiss. I'm so excited to be here. Let's talk about nutrition and health. All right. Well, there's a very important subject that we're going to be talking about, eating disorders. Are you ready to go? I'm so ready to go. So what is the root cause of eating disorders? Oh, there's so many potential risk factors for disordered eating. And it's really important to first acknowledge that not all eating disorders can be lumped into one category. We have the classic three uh, eating disorders of anorexia, bulimia, nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And there are others, feeding disorders, et cetera. So I think when we think about risk factors, we know that there's some different ones for anorexia nervosa compared to binge eating disorder. You know, we have obsessive compulsive disorder, perfectionistic traits. There's genetics that contribute to uh, 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 anorexia nervosa and some of the other eating disorders. And then also social factors, right? The relentless pursuit of thinness. Sometimes people pick up from dieting behaviors from their parents or from society as a whole. And then with some of the other eating disorders, there's other risk factors. We have trauma as a known PTSD or early life adversity as a known risk factor. We have addiction tendencies or impulsivity, what we sometimes call reward dysfunction. Sometimes people are more prone to loss of control eating, and that could come from a genetic legacy as well. It could also come from trauma, and then it starts to play out with food. And usually eating disorders are onset by someone going on their first diet, but not always, right? So Dieting and uh, body image disturbance are typically associated with eating disorders, but I, I always want to make the point that not all eating disorders are driven from body image disturbance and dieting. There are other forms of disordered eating that come from other biological factors. Now, if we cracked each one of these open, this episode would turn into hours long. So let's keep it narrow into a couple categories. So let, let's crack open reward dysfunction and maybe even the legacy behind that. Talk just a little bit about that and what, what, what you've seen in your practice. Yeah, I've definitely had the privilege and honor of working with a lot of people over the last 11 years, and many people come from a substance use disorder background. And this is one of the more controversial areas in the eating disorder space right now. How much does addiction contribute to disordered eating? We know that when someone has uh, a, a family history of alcoholism or addiction, they're more likely to have alcoholism and addiction. Partially, it's because of the genetics and the biology, and it's also in part because of sometimes growing up in those type of environments, right? But there's been this really controversial topic of food addiction in the last 10 or so years, and there's this sort of um, idea that if someone has addiction-like eating, 
that they might be more prone to having binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, or, or anorexia. Now, when, when I say that there's a lot of controversy, I just want to highlight most people assume that addiction like eating and reward dysfunction comes from dieting. And that certainly is true in a lot of cases. When people start dieting, maybe in their early teens or their 20s, they start having loss of control eating. But it's recently been suggested um, in an awesome longitudinal study that a lot of people start dieting because they have the reward dysfunction. It's the addiction that drives the dieting. So it does kind of become a chicken and egg conundrum, right? People that have um, substance use disorders, alcohol use disorders, and other addictions are more likely to have food use disorders, right? And that could lead to an eating disorder. So it's an area where there's a lot of muddy signals. It's not clear, is it more of a classic restrictive eating disorder or is it more of an addiction-like eating disorder? And that's an area where I'm doing a lot of really awesome work right now. Where do you stand on the chicken and egg scenario in this case? Yeah, it's impossible to say uh, uh, broadly, everyone's going to be different. But I, I do think that the assumption that all eating disorders come from dieting and from internalized weight stigma and body image disturbance is false. That there is a lot more people that have disordered eating that stems from uh, addiction-like neurochemistry. And these are uh, generally the people that are being missed right now in eating disorder treatment and even the people that feel uh, somewhat marginalized or misunderstood by the uh, current um, contemporary eating disorder establishment. Right. So the depending on the chicken or the egg, the coping mechanism could be the, you know, the addiction to a substance and then a byproduct could be the food or vice versa. It's, it's very interesting. And, and I think maybe to your point, it all can be true. Does that sound what you're saying? It all can be true and everyone's different. And, you know, in functional medicine, what we try to do is map out a patient's timeline to really look at, you know, what happened first, right? When did some of these uh, behaviors emerge? How old were you? What were some of the other risk factors so that you can start to understand the timeline, uh, the temporal sequence of the disorder onset? I find that to be very, very helpful to figure out if someone is more on the addiction spectrum or more on the classic eating disorder spectrum. I want to ask you about gut biology, because it's come up on the show before, uh, Dr. Wiss, and it's something that I don't think has been talked a ton about, and I wanted to see and get, get, get your opinions about it. What's been brought up on the show in the past is about bloating and the relationship with eating disorders in bloating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a lot of people develop disordered ways of eating because of uh, uncomfortable symptoms that they experience oftentimes in the gut. You know, bloating can have a lot of different uh, sources. It really could just be an imbalance in uh, intestinal uh, microbiota. It could be, you know, poor digestive uh, function, lack of enzymes. There's so many things that could lead to bloating. And I think in the eating disorder world, uh, people's biology is often ignored, right? If someone has uh, a purging disorder, or they're trying to diet, or they're trying to avoid certain foods, quickly people assume that it's um, you know just diet culture, that it's just restriction. But a lot of times people are doing that because their symptoms are so uncomfortable. Sometimes people will uh, perceive that they're gaining a lot of weight because they're accumulating a lot of gas in their bellies, and it feels like something that they have to manage, right? Some crises that has to be managed in the short term. And so, yes, I've come across uh, clients and patients who have uh, uh, purging disorders, 
their 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 GI sometimes just releases food without even them deliberately trying to do so. So I do think that the future of eating disorder treatment will involve a lot more functional medicine, uh, the ability to really take a look at someone's biology and figure out what are some of these real driving factors, you know, with uh, gut bacteria, hunger hormones, and uh, uh, neuroscience. I think it's beautiful. I think we're we're hitting a lot of paradigm shifts in different parts of medicine, and I'm glad to hear that you know this is happening on the eating disorder side. Let, let's shift gears into maybe a, a story you can share about a patient. If you have one in the reward dysfunction category, I'd love to hear a little bit about their journey and, and, and where they came in and how they exited. Yeah, let me think and speak broadly because I've, I've, I've dealt with a lot of patients over the last 11 years. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of cases where I've had a lot of patients that are, that are underweight that don't have classic anorexia nervosa, but the uh, uh, eating disorder establishment just treats them like they do. And, 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 and so what, what I've seen is sometimes people have just a really low appetite and they really want to eat and they want to gain weight, but they can't. And I've actually come across a case recently of someone that um, really wants to uh, uh, eat more, their body rejects food, and their body actually rejects a lot of ultra-processed food, um, and, and their brain gets uh, very confused by food that's highly palatable and highly rewarding. And so this person lives in an underweight body, and they don't like to eat ultra-processed foods, but when they've gone to seek help, everyone sees them as a restrictive eating disorder patient with anorexia nervosa. And, and, and the treatment you know, that they've gotten in the past was like, no, you got to eat these ultra processed foods. And the patient has gone to lots of uh, eating disorder treatment centers. And they're just like, totally fed up. They're saying, I'm never going to one of these places again. I just want to learn how to eat food and to gain weight and not eat uh, certain types of food that overactivate reward pathways in the brain. A lot of people get anxiety when you get a lot of dopamine hits, you know, throughout the day. Some people like getting comfort from food and other people uh, perhaps it's the dopamine, perhaps it's the serotonin and start to feel really uncomfortable. And so, yeah, I've dealt with quite a few people that have gut symptoms and reward dysfunction that get lumped into the, into the category of restrictive eating disorders that need a slightly different uh, pathway to recovery. And I've been very fortunate to uh, be a safe place for a lot of people there. I have a question. You mentioned uh, ultra processed foods as sort of a recommendation to some some of this uh, these eating modalities, wh why is ultra processed foods even on the table? Yeah, that's a definite question that I've posed, and I think it's safe to say that there are forms of eating disorders where people are very restrained about the quality of food. Uh, maybe you've heard the term orthorexia nervosa, but it's this growing concern that some people are more concerned about where the food comes from the level of processing than they are about the calories or the macronutrients. So we do see that in a lot of eating disorder treatment, people that have a lot of food fears. And the fears that people have are usually ultra processed food. So when someone is consumed by fears, you know, the treatment does often include some level of exposure therapy. And that will in many cases include eating these foods. So for a lot of people with eating disorders, the treatment would actually involve the consumption of ultra processed foods that they would previously be 
afraid of in an effort to make peace with those foods and finally be able to realize that maybe it's not about the food, it's more about their thinking, right? So for a subset of patients with eating disorders, utilizing a food exposure therapy with ultra-processed foods is actually a really important part of treatment. But for other people, perhaps a person that has gut dysbiosis and reward dysfunction, impulsivity and a history of uh, addiction in the family legacy, maybe that particular approach wouldn't be as helpful. And it's a major uh, conundrum because, you know, a lot of people get eating disorder treatment from a facility, whether residential or outpatient. And it's really hard for dietitians to give different food philosophies to different people. So you end up lumping everyone together and giving everyone the same sort of nutrition message. And it works really well for a subset of the people, but a lot of the other folks are left confused, baffled, and never wanting to go to eating disorder treatment again. You know, as you're talking about these processed foods and the fear behind it, uh, this question is starting to loom in my head. What's the difference between healthy eating and fear of eating something that's processed? Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of us are starting to pose it on social media and have conversations. Why has ultra processed food become so normalized that avoiding it has now become diet culture, right? Uh, that's uh, uh, wild. I think the best answer that I could come up with is that it has to do with the amount of emotional charge that someone holds around it. So there's there's one thing to be like, yeah, that's not in my best interest. I, I'm not actually that drawn to that food. I don't believe that to be nutrient dense and supportive of my health. And that would be a normal state that someone could take, a position that someone could take. But if someone is like angry at the food, vehemently opposed, right? And it's taking up a lot of space in their mind and they're going through the day thinking about wanting to eat it and then feeling guilty and shameful because they, they, they want to eat it, but they really, there's a part of them that doesn't. And it occupies a lot of space, right? That's what makes something a quote unquote mental health disorder, right? So yeah, it's different just not wanting to do something and then having it be like a, a, a major source of uh, emotional distress. No, I think that's a very fair assessment. Um, would another piece and another component to it be the weight loss in association with that too, or no? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of messaging out there in the world um, and science to support the idea that people that eat more real food, more whole foods, you know, might fare better with their uh, biology and, and their weight. And so I think a lot of people would uh, make an effort to avoid ultra processed foods for weight concerns. And then the weight concerns get entangled with kind of eating disorder, psychopathology. But, you know, in my practice, I focus on mental health as an outcome. And uh, there's actually a lot of data in the last few years to show that ultra processed foods increase depression and anxiety. So I think there's a difference between avoiding ultra processed foods because you want to lose weight and avoiding ultra processed food because uh, you want to protect your brain from the dysfunctions there. I think this takes us to, you know, if someone is starting to recognize that this might be a problem for them, where, where do you explore and how do you begin to start figuring out if this is you or, or this is a problem that you have? I think it's really smart for people that are looking for help to get with practitioners that understand the biopsychosocial model of health. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that have a good foundation in understanding the biological mechanisms of uh, gut health and neuroscience 
also understanding the psychology of eating, what we call nutritional psychology, and then have a good grasp of all the social and contextual factors like weight stigma, diet culture, and then being able to bring them all together. It does seem like currently we have people that are really good at the psychosocial components of eating disorders. They understand the thinking, the role of dietary restraint. And then we have you know people that do research that are very mechanistic and understand appetitive hormones, the way that you know uh, uh, genetic predispositions to impulsivity, right? And there aren't a lot of people that bring together the biology and the psychosocial factors. And I'm very fortunate to have you know gotten a PhD from UCLA and done biopsychosocial research. But I do think that if someone has biological drivers of their eating disorders and then they go to just get a, a therapist who doesn't understand biology, that they could get some confusing messages. And similarly, if someone has, you know, gut issues or other medical related issues and they just go to a doctor who doesn't understand the psychosocial drivers of eating disorders, they're going to get confusing messages. So we need practitioners that operate at the intersection of these different disciplines to understand how to best treat someone with an eating disorder. The big question then is what should you expect from your dietitian? Great question. Someone that's seeking help should certainly um you know, want to interview someone to make sure that there's a good energetic match. But I think that a red flag for me is when someone is very adamant about having a single food philosophy, when they're saying like, this is what I do, this is what I believe in, because nature is heterogeneous and not all eating disorders are the same. I think if someone has a food philosophy and they dig their heels in the sand and say, this is what I'm about, that will be a really good match for a, a, a subset of the population, but won't be necessarily helpful to all people that are on that spectrum. So, you know, I try to I try to recommend that people look for someone that is well versed in multiple modalities, someone that knows functional medicine, but knows uh, intuitive eating and mindful eating, and they're they're well versed in a lot of different things. Not so that they could figure out which box someone belongs into but so that they can treat people at the intersection of all these different boxes. And that's really what nutrition for mental health represents. It represents an acknowledgement of the biology, you know, the gut brain access. And it also acknowledges the importance of nutritional psychology, how we think about food, how we think about our bodies. Now you've been in this field for a very long time. You've worked with many patients and many different settings you felt that something was necessary and you designed an experience. Um, I believe it's actually an app, right? Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yes, it is a passion project and it's also a fusion project. I did realize that the nutrition field had started to feel toxic because we have the, the eating disorder world and then we have you know the world of wellness and they do seem to clash, right? It does seem like there's, there's diet culture and there's non-diet culture. And then people, patients were forced to sort of pick, you know, what do I want to, what path do I want to go down? And uh, nutrition for mental health, which is the essence of wise mind nutrition, does represent this intersection space where people can pull the wisdom from different areas to use science, to use biology, but also to use practical uh, ways of uh, eating and sustainable ways of being and not uh, capturing uh, diet culture energy. So Wise My Nutrition is a nutrition framework that is designed to help improve mental health outcomes 
it is not math centric, which means it's not about counting calories and macronutrients. It doesn't focus on the quantitative aspects of eating as much as it does the qualitative aspects. So it teaches people how to think about food in terms of food groups, to think about how much to eat in terms of hunger and fullness, to use uh, uh, recovery principles to improve one's relationship with food and with their body. And it is designed to be an anti-inflammatory approach to eating to improve gut health, which in turn is going to improve brain health and you know, recommends all the foods that have scientific support to really help improve cognitive function and essentially help people that are on a healing journey with depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, trauma, food addiction, substance use disorders, where they can all get some recovery under the same roof and build a community of like-minded folks that want to drop out of diet culture and start being deliberate and intentional about their food and uh, celebrate themselves in the life that they already have instead of the one that you're waiting to get. Dr. Wise, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we'll definitely have you back to talking about more subjects. Um, if someone wanted to download the app, where do they go? How do they find it? Yes. So we are official. We're in the Apple store. And I think by the time this gets released, we'll be in the, uh, in the Android store as well. So we're in the two major Google Play is I think the name of it. Yeah. So uh, we're in the uh, big app platforms. The website is wisemindnutrition.com. Uh, I have an Instagram at wisemindnutrition, YouTube, TikTok, putting out little videos and just spreading the word. Definitely looking to build a community of practitioners because a big part of the app is the connect feature where uh, practitioners, dietitians can use this with their clients and to be able to uh, provide ongoing support in someone's uh, wellness journey. What does someone type into the app store to find the app? Three words, wise mind nutrition. Yeah, sometimes people combine the wise mind into one word. And wise is spelled W-I-S-S? -S? Nope, wise is W-I-S-E. So it's a little bit of a spin on my last name, but the, uh, the expression wise mind comes from dialectical behavioral therapy. It is, represents the intersection space between the logical brain and the emotional brain, right? And so, yeah, it's close to my last name, but not the same. Dr. Wise, thank you so much. You got it. Thank you for tuning into the Wonder Why podcast. If today's episode resonated with you or reminded you of someone struggling with similar symptoms, please share it with them. It might just be the life-changing moment they need. This show is brought to you by Dietitians for a Healthy America, a nonprofit dedicated to advocating for dietitians and promoting nutritional therapy to enhance health and prevent diseases for all Americans. For more information, visit our website, www.dietitianshealthieramerica.org. Until next time, stay curious and empowered in your health journey.